Major Lasky believe? He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Went mad, he did. Tall tales. Writer-director Robert Eggers kept his new film, The Lighthouse, tightly under wraps while it was being made. But now that it's been released, he's opening up about the film set in an 1890s New England lighthouse. How long have we been on this rock? Five weeks? Two days? Help me to recollect. Beth Accomando, and welcome back to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Today, I look to a pair of new films and speak with filmmaker Robert Eggers about The Lighthouse, starring Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And then I talk to Stephen Merchant about his role as a Nazi in Taika Waititi's anti-hate satire, Jojo Rabbit. So let's get the first break out of the way early, and I'll be right back with my interview with Robert Eggers, the director of The Witch and now The Lighthouse. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. First of all, there was a title at the end of the film, which I wasn't able to read because it was fairly small, but did it say that some of the dialogue was taken from, like, Lighthouse uh, logs? Yeah. In The Witch, my previous film, uh, there's a lot of intact sentences from Puritan writings. There's not a lot of intact sentences in The Lighthouse. My brother and I were really, for the most part, writing our own dialogue, but because we don't speak in obscure New England dialects from the 19th century, we had to do a lot of research to, to sort that out. Being from from in the 19th century and New England and nautical, obviously we're going to turn to Melville very quickly. And we did look at lighthouse keepers, logs, and, and, and journals, and many other sources, which I'll spare you. But the, the one that's listed uh, on the on that title card, that was too small and brief for you to decipher. We, we, we acknowledge the main author within the state of Maine, Sarah Orne Jewett. She was writing in the same period as the film takes place, and she was interviewing uh, working people in coastal Maine and then writing her main stories in dialect, often phonetically, uh, which became very helpful for my brother and I. Rob speaks like her, her slightly inland farmers, more or less, and, and, and Willem speaks like the characters who make their living uh, on on the sea. And there are a few, Willem Dafoe does have a couple intact sentences from a retired sea captain character in Sarah Orne Jewett, which allegedly means that uh, a retired sea captain actually said those things at some point in time. And in doing that research, was there anything you found that inspired you in some way or, or that surprised you? Uh, I mean, anything that was surprising or inspiring, we, we put in the movie. You're creating, uh, I'm creating a thesaurus, or rather creating a thesaurus uh, to kind of draw from. You know, we're writing in, in dialect from the beginning. We're not translating from modern English. So the thesaurus is kind of grouped with 
phrases and vocabulary that talk about mood and, and, and feeling and intention rather than like a, a direct one-to-one translation like a, a normal thesaurus. But yeah, it's all inspiring. I mean, the, you know, of course, we, we, were, we, weren't, we didn't say, let's write a movie in 19th century Maine dialects. Like the idea was to do a, create a ghost story in a lighthouse didn't end up being a ghost story. It ended up being something more strange, but the, it was that concept. And then the, the black and white atmosphere, the black and white, crusty, dusty, rusty, musty atmosphere of, of this nautical world with cable knit Guernsey sweaters and stumpy clay pipes and salt cod. Uh, you know, that was a, a world we wanted to explore. And in order to articulate it, uh, we needed to do a whole lot of research. Now, you mentioned The Witch, and that was inspired by tales of New England. And this also is kind of very localized to that area as well. What appeals to you about drawing on these stories that are kind of from your neighbor, your backyard, kind of? Well, you know, uh, as every writing teacher says, write what you know. So there's that. And, and, and Max and I kind of grew up in the location of the witch in a clabbered house surrounded, surrounded by scary, uh, white pines. And then, you know, family summer vacations, we would drive up to Maine and, and, and for, to, to, to vacation in the lighthouse, uh, location, sort of. Uh, and, and both films are certainly me trying to commune with the, the folk culture of my region's past, or, or I should say the culturally dominant, uh, Anglo-Protestant folk culture of my region. I wanted to ask you about the, your choice of the aspect ratio for the film. Do you intend for it to be seen on a big screen where it does have these kind of, um, black pillars on either side. And the reason I ask is that there were certain times in the film where that almost made it feel more claustrophobic, like they were moving in on the characters. And sometimes it blended into the frame and made it seem wider. And I was just curious if you intended it to be projected kind of on a screen like that or, or to have it just be that that squarish frame. Well, the boxy aspect ratio was uh, does a few things for us. For one thing, it is an old-timey aspect ratio, 119 to 1, that comes from the early sound era. And so it, you know, on a very simple, easy surface level, transports us back in time a bit. But additionally, you know, we're framing vertical objects like the lighthouse tower and cramped interiors, cramped claustrophobic interiors, like you mentioned, and a boxy aspect ratio is better for that than, than a wide one. In a perfect world, I, I would kind of prefer for it to be screened in theaters that had uh, a more square screen, but obviously knowing that we live in uh, 2019 and, and theaters are designed for CinemaScope, I was quite aware that yeah, in nearly every situation, this movie is going to be seen as a box, you know, in the middle of a cinema screen with, with, with pillar boxing. Was I conscious about the pillar boxing adding to the claustrophobia? Maybe, but I think if there were theaters that had a slightly square screen, I, would, I might prefer that. I still think it would be plenty claustrophobic, just as <laughs> Pap's Kameradschaft, which was a film made in the early 30s about uh, a mine but uh, was very claustrophobic in this aspect ratio back when screens 
uh, were more square. Well, what I love about your films, this one and The Witch, is that you really feel this sense of craft going on in the sense of, I feel like everything that's there is there for a very particular reason, and you, you really took the care to frame it exactly like that, light it exactly like that, put the elements in the frame. And I'm just wondering, when you tackle these things, did you know from the beginning that that's the aspect ratio you wanted to work in and that you wanted it to be black and white? And kind of where in the creative process did some of these decisions come in? Uh, black and white and a boxy aspect ratio were there from from the very, very uh, first time that my brother said a ghost story in a lighthouse. How we specifically carried these things out is an evolution of that that comes from research and writing and the story becoming more clear. Uh, and then some of the technical stuff is also like what we can literally, what me and Jaron, the cinematographer, and I can like literally get our hands on. The, the the even boxier aspect ratio than Academy, the the one nineteen to one early sound business that came uh, a few years into thinking about the movie. Uh, Jaron brought that up half jokingly, but I thought that it was a a fine idea. But you know, we would have wanted to have photographed the movie on orthochromatic film stock, uh, but that doesn't exist any, anymore for motion picture cameras. So we we used uh, black and white negative called Kodak double X uh, that hasn't changed since the 1950s and, and also looks really good. And then Jaron developed a custom filter with Schneider uh, to give us the orthochromatic look and, and orthochromatic basically uh, the, the, the main thing about it is that it's, it's not sensitive to red light. So uh, the color red renders black and all the rosy hues in Caucasian uh, skin tones render darker, and you're picking up every blood vessel and pore, uh, which are, is going to make Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe look uh, more like salty semen. I have to say that when I went to the film, I had gone with no sleep the night before because I had a project I, w- I was working on deadline. And I have to say that on a certain level, that intensified the experience of making it a little more <laughs> like kind of hallucinatory on a certain level. And I just wanted you to talk a little I, bit. I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't just fall asleep. <laughs> no, no, n- not at all. That, it was, I mean, I found it quite riveting. Talk a little bit about how you, because there's this mix of some of it feels very kind of gritty and real. And then there are these other moments where it just kind of, I don't want to give away too much, but there's other moments where it like takes off and creates a very different kind of fantastical world. Well, uh, fairy tales, folk tales, mythology, religion, uh, sometimes the occult, that's what really interests me. And so we're going, so in exploring the, the folklore uh, of New England and uh, the nautical New England and, and the imported folk folklore from the British Isles and, and Western Europe, there's going to be a mermaid. And you have to try to make that mermaid as credible as the buttons the period-correct United States Lighthouse Establishment buttons on Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson's uniforms. And, of course, it, it is a story of two men in a claustrophobic potboiler situation. And so, you know, that's going to lead to madness, and madness leads to large emotions. And I actually don't think that Dafoe and, 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 and Rob's performances are stylized. I think that they're quite realistic. But if you've ever been face to face with with madness, it can seem quite extreme. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there are certain elements in this that harken back to H.P. Lovecraft. And I'm wondering if you are a fan of his and and if that influenced you in any way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Poe, Arthur Mackin, M.R. James, Algernon Blackwood, Lovecraft were all influential to this movie, though my brother and I prefer the like Jamesian ambiguity rather than Lovecraft kind of explaining everything. If if, lo- if this were truly Lovecraftian, when Rob finally gets his hands on Willem Dafoe's logbook, it would be filled with uh, Dagon runes and explanations of how Willem was part of a mystical cult and the and and the Lovecraftian god that lived in the beacon of the lens and all that stuff would be uh, explained. Not that I'm saying that that's what is happening in the movie either. Uh, like, but that that kind of specificity, I'm not really particularly interested in for this movie. Well, what I like about your films also is that you take horrific elements and you take certain elements that are kind of familiar horror tropes, but you always seem to be able to push the boundaries of conventional horror to find something that feels uniquely your own. Well, thanks. That's a very nice compliment. I think it's just that the stuff that I read and watch and and, and, and inspired by the composers and painters as well, they all tend to be in cemeteries. So people are kind of less familiar with some of my with some of my influences. So that can give make give my films the appearance of being unique even if I know they aren't. (laughs) And one element that's great in this also is the soundscape, because there isn't a real defining line between kind of ambient sound or real sounds and then music and then sound design. And talk a little bit about how you work with sound on your film. Uh, In a very heavy-handed fashion. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of sound telegraphing what's, what's going on. I'd love to make a movie one day that that doesn't have uh, a musical score, but both The Witch and The Lighthouse, because they're dealing with these like ecstatic emotions and experiences, I don't think that you can uh, really communicate that without without music. But yeah, um, when I was shooting the film on Cape Forshoe, which is a peninsula off the southern tip of Nova Scotia, an incredibly punishing, inhospitable location, I might say, the sounds and the power of the sea and the wind was so uh, present that, you know, I, I wanted to have a really large sounding movie. That was the only way to do it. So we worked very hard with Damien Volpe, the sound designer, and Mark Corvin, the composer, on, on as you say, uh, blending the, the lines between these two things where the foghorn would sort of meld with the aleatoric brass section and Willem Dafoe's flatulence. And there was a lot of work to be done to make sure that every object in the house sounded as crusty, dusty, rusty, musty. I hope I didn't already use that string of words in in this interview. But, you know, to make everything sound as broken down as as possible so that when, you know, when you hear all all the, the rust and old pipes and horrible sounds of the water pump that you know that the water that's going to come out of that has got to be the worst tasting water that's ever existed. <laughs> you mentioned that when you and your brother were younger, that there were things about witches and ghosts that, that scared you as kids. What kind of influences did you have as a child in terms of the things that scared you and, and how that maybe has colored your 
creative interests moving forward into filmmaking? I mean, obviously, witches were a big deal. Uh, since I've made The Witch, I haven't had a nightmare about The Witch, so I suppose I kind of exercised that, so that's nice. But I think all these childhood memories are a huge part of any creative person's work. I mean, it's part of any adult baggage and, and, and what make, it makes them who they are, uh, any adult. But of course, in doing creative work, if it's going to resonate, you're, you're drawing from your autobiography. I, I don't think I would ever literally make anything autobiographical. I don't think interesting enough, but you put your, your, your pieces of yourself into the fictions that, that, that you create. So whether it's a literal fear of a, of a creature like a witch uh, or, or an archetype like a witch, there's also just the everyday anxiety uh, of, of childhood and being afraid that your parents are going to find out that you've flunked uh, everything that semester, that you can, you know, uh, imbue your work with that same kind of terror uh, or try to. That was filmmaker Robert Eggers. The Lighthouse opens in more theaters this week. I'll be right back after this final break with my interview with Stephen Merchant. He plays a Nazi in Taika Waititi's new anti-hate satire, Jojo Rabbit. Although Merchant only acts in this film, he's a writer and director in his own right and was one of the creative forces behind the British sitcom The Office. So sit tight, and I'll be right back to talk about Jojo Rabbit with Stephen Merchant. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. To begin with, Stephen, this film is not a film that fits neatly into a box, which is one of the things I love about it. But how would you describe it to someone? Yes, it's a it's a tricky um, sell, as it were. Obviously, the the people behind the movie have labelled it an anti hate satire, which I think is a pretty accurate description. But yes, uh, do you, do you mean in terms of how would I describe the story, or how would I categorise the the tone of the film or the feel of the film? If you were trying to get somebody to come to see your film and they were a little bit like, I'm not sure what it is, what would you tell them? Well, firstly, I would I would tell them. That for me, it, it fits into a, a tradition of movies that I've always really loved, which use humor to deal with, with big or difficult subjects. It puts me in mind of films like Dr. Strangelove. You know, there's no more bleaker subject than nuclear apocalypse, but dealt with such irreverence and, and humor that obviously famously became a classic. I think Monty Python's The Life of Brian did something similar with religion. And uh, in this case, we're dealing with Hitler, we're dealing with prejudice. Uh, and the way that sort of, I suppose, people can become, can get swept up in a particular ideology, particularly children. And so in that regard, it fits into an even longer tradition of, of movies that satirized and mocked Hitler right back to the 1940s when he was still in power. Obviously, uh, Chaplin's The Great Dictator being a, a kind of prime example, but also Ernest Lubitsch did it with To Be or Not To Be, later Mel Brooks in the 60s. And certainly in the UK, where I'm from, there was a long tradition of, of sort of people mocking Hitler, even I remember on talk shows, people would come on sort of dressed as him and, and goof around. And and so um, I suppose for me, that's what kind of appeals to me about the film is it's, it's, it's very comic, but I think it deals with big ideas. And I think also by the end, it's very moving. And I think it takes you on an emotional journey, which 
in, in a in a climate of movies where there's a lot of you know and nothing wrong with it, but a lot of superhero movies and remakes. It's it's quite brave, to, I think, to make a film in which a young boy has Hitler as an imaginary friend. All right, you've mentioned like some of my all-time favorite films uh, in that list, but we're at a time right now where it seems comedy is in a difficult spot because people seem to be almost looking to be offended and to to kind of take this stance of like you can't make jokes about that which is a little different or not maybe not a little different but it, it seems like there's a very acute sense of this right now so how do you kind of get a comedy like this to reach an audience and to kind of sidestep some of that well tricky, isn't it? I think there's, there's a difference between giving offence and, and taking offence. And sometimes people can take offence at something and you, there's no way of you policing that, really, as, as the filmmaker. I think you just have to be able to do something that you can stand by and feel that you're not trying to upset or offend. You're just simply trying to tell your story and, and use humour as you see fit. And like I said before, I, I think this film fits into that long tradition of satirizing Hitler. In fact, it's interesting that during the war itself, the BBC in my country had uh, German expats writing comedy sketches, which they then broadcast back into Nazi Germany in, in an effort to sort of undermine and mock, satirize the regime. And so I suppose for me, it seems odd that we would be overly sensitive now about dealing with this subject when, in fact, uh, at the time, it, 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 you know, humour was it was was one of the direct targets against him. So, yes, of course, people will always feel there's subjects you can't joke about. I guess because I come from the world of comedy, uh, I've always felt you can, in theory, make humour and satire about any subject. It's about how you do it, and do you do it responsibly? And and so, like I say, in the end, I don't think the movie sets out to cause offence, but people could choose to take offense if, if they decided to. Well, you've written and directed a lot of comedy yourself. So looking at the film that Taika Waititi has created, what are the, the challenges or, or how do you actually kind of make it work when you're kind of going from slapstick to pathos, like sometimes within seconds of each other? Well, I have to say, you know, I've try to juggle, you know, humor and emotion and pathos in the work I've done. But it wasn't until I saw the finished version of this that I was amazed at sort of how he had managed to pull it off. Because, you know, even in the making of it, I, I, I sort of admired Taika's ambition, but I couldn't quite see how those two things were going to match up. I really was, I was thinking, wow, this is going to be, this is going to be a sort of audacious roll of the dice. And and somehow, you know, in seeing the finished film, I think he starts with, with humor, sometimes quite broad, sometimes even surreal in a, in a Monty Python way. And then somewhere in the midpoint of the film, you're starting to really invest in these people. And by the end, I think it's very emotional and very heartfelt. And that's, that's a testament to him that I'm genuinely, and I don't mean this sort of, you know, just in order to sort of blow smoke up his arse, as we would say. I just don't know quite how he did it. I, I, it's some kind of sleight of hand that... That is very impressive, and I think in part it's because Taika's just very instinctive. You know, I think he just he he just goes with his gut, and I think he feels. Whereas perhaps I would have overanalyzed it, I think he's just gone with I'm going to make you laugh, and now I'm going to make you cry, and I think he just goes with his instinct, and, and I think he pulls it off 
magnificently. I, I, I really was dazzled when I, when I saw the finished film. And what does he like to work with? Because the comedy, to create this kind of comedy, it, it seems to me that it would have to be kind of very meticulously planned and, and written. But is it something that was tightly scripted or did he allow for some sort of improvisation by actors? How was he to, to work I mean, with? Certainly my experience was I had um, learned the script very carefully and I'd worked with a dialect coach because I, we had to all do these German accents. And I'm not very good at accents, and I was a little anxious about that. And I and I had written out, you know, in my script every word, kind of, you know, and broken it down into syllables, and was very well prepared and got there on the day. And then he said, "Now improvise," and I had a <laughs> something of a panic attack, thinking, "Well, I I can barely do the German accent as it is, let alone improvise." And I'm opposite recent Academy Award winner Sam Rockwell, and I was very anxious. But the atmosphere he created was very non-judgmental and, and very improvisatory, if that's the word, and just, you know, welcomed our our input. And, you know, it's tricky because you are dealing with delicate subject matter, but you don't want to sort of censor yourself on set, really. You just feel like you need to go with it and, and trust that he'll choose what's right in the editing room, which is, which is what he did. But, yes, certainly, again, for dealing with such heavy subject matter, there was a surprisingly light sort of atmosphere on set, which I think you just need to when you're doing comedy in particular. Well, in your scene in particular, too, he seemed to have a lot of fun with the physicality of you being very tall. Yes. <laughs> and exaggerating, possibly, but you being very tall and Sam Rockwell being much shorter. Well, I sort of was towering above Sam in a very deliberate way to yeah. seem like this intimidating Gestapo officer. And then Tyker just thought that was funny and so then put me on a box... <laughs> to make me even taller again. And I'm already six foot seven. It's rare that people make me stand on a box <laughs> in a movie. They normally want me to crouch or bend down. So, um, yes. Uh, but yes, there's a kind of those subtle ways of using the sort of physical humor, which, which I always love. As a very tall English person with blondish hair, it was inevitable to me one day I would get the phone call, we want you to play a Nazi. It feels like every English actor plays a Nazi at some point. And I just was pleased I was able to do it for Taika. And how do you tackle a role like that? Well, to me, I was put in mind of the Gestapo officers you saw in movies like uh, The Great Escape or uh, even Raiders of the Lost Ark, in which there's something sort of... It's, it, they always felt very bureaucratic, and it's something about that which made them all the more chilling for me. They always seemed like petty men, men of... No, in, of no significance in, mm -hmm. you know, in, in life, who had sort of somehow been given the, the power of life and death over people. And so they were sort of, they were characters like I've played before, nerdy guys, insecure people, who've suddenly been given this power. And, and sometimes for me, they're the scariest people because, because they don't wield a gun. You know, they make other people do their dirty work. And so for us, for me, it was trying to be sort of both slightly buffoonish, like a kind of nerdy bureaucrat who then can suddenly turn on a dime and be eerie and chilling and have a kind of creepy smile. And um, that was what we were shooting for. And again, as you said before, just trying to get that balance of, of humor with uh, hopefully something more real or sincere or, in this case, chilling. I recently had the opportunity to... Um interview uh, Armando Iannucci about his films and work. And one of the things you mentioned is that he said our real world and our real politics have become so absurd that 
like he felt he had to quit Veep because he couldn't, as a comedy writer, he couldn't come up with anything more absurd. And then he turned to Soviet Russia to make a film. Yeah. So as someone who does deal with a lot of comedy, I mean, is there that sense that sometimes the real world gets so absurd it's it's hard <laughs> to find comedy like contemporary stuff? You have to go back in time to... Well, yeah. I mean, I think that I think that's true. I mean, I feel like we are living in an age in which the rules that used to exist, particularly in politics, sort of no longer do. And it seemed like the rules was what you could mock and, and you could, you know, you could kind of, when things have a very rigid structure of how things are done, somehow that makes satire easier and, and sort of magnifying the absurdity of it. But now when the the absurdity is just, you know, for instance, you know, the classic joke about politicians is always that they were lying. Well, now they're lying openly and, and, and everyone accepts that they're lying and that's a new normal. And so you can't undermine that aspect anymore. I mean, there is a sort of power, there's extraordinary power in someone just denying that they've done something. You've lied. No, I haven't. You can't come back to that. The the rule used to be, you've lied. Oh, no, I'm humiliated and ashamed. I better resign. But, But if you just say, no, I didn't lie, you're sort of invincible. And it does make satire and comedy much harder because you used to try and expose that hypocrisy. You played that hypocrisy for laughs, but that hypocrisy is just worn as a badge of honor now. So it is It is somehow, you know, you, you, you go back, as Armando did to Stalin, this Russia, or you go back as we have to World War II, and and, and yes, at least, at least somehow the rules were clearer then. <laughs> So yeah, it, it is. It is difficult. It's very. It's. It's. It's also, I think, always slightly depressing that no matter how many times a late night talk show host or a Saturday Night Live sketch mocks the current political climate, it makes no real impact, and you start to feel a little bit like you're just um, again, without wishing to be vulgar, as we would say in England, you're pissing into the wind. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. I know you're on a tight schedule, and um, thanks so much for talking about the film. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That was Stephen Merchant, who plays one of the Nazi officers in the new film Jojo Rabbit that opens in theaters in November. Thanks for listening to another episode of Cinema Junkie. The show comes out every other week. And in a crowded podcast field, I need your help to get more people to give Cinema Junkie a try and hopefully become addicted. So consider telling a friend to take a listen. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident Cinema Junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.